All right, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17 today. 1 Samuel 17. Um, as you'll see on the screen behind me, it, it says up there at the bottom, it's a precursor to the book of Acts. If you uh, are a guest of ours today, or if this is not your church home and, and you find yourself here today and have not been here uh, much before or at all before, then I want to explain that this is not the norm. Uh, you know, I, I usually don't just select certain passages, but we go through books of the Bible, and the word for that is expository preaching, taking a book of the Bible and line by line, verse by verse, walking through that text. And we're going to do that soon. On August the 13th, we'll start the book of Acts. But I wanted to <coughs> look at a passage this morning that sort of has some relevancy to where we're going to be in Acts whenever we begin in just a couple of weeks. The theme we're going to see in Acts that we're going to see today is that God claims victory over the enemy in such a way that it can only be explained that the victory belongs to God and God alone. That's God's MO, right? I mean, he wins in such a way that it is unmistakable who did the winning, who brought the victory. And we're going to end there this morning, and we're going to pick up there when we get into Acts in a couple of weeks. This is such a long passage, and if you haven't already put it together, but whether the graphic behind me or the passage when you arrived at it, David and Goliath are the two names that, that stand out, and right? And so this is a passage that's really long. It's rarely preached and taught in full. It's sort of taught with illustrations, or maybe you... You know what, to be honest with you, you've maybe never heard David and Goliath preached in full. You ever think about that? I mean, this is a lot of text here, and maybe you've never heard it preached on a Sunday morning and that you feel like you know the narrative like the back of your hand. I'm going to suggest that you don't. I'm going to suggest that there are things here that you've never considered before. And so this morning, I want to uncover some of those things, and only some of them, because we could be here for a very long time if I wanted to really unearth some of the really neat things here. But, you know, we call this passage David and Goliath, but it leaves out the most important person in the story. God. God is the, really the central figure here. But we call this David and Goliath. But this passage is bigger than the two men. It's really a narrative about two nations, two people groups. And that would be Philistia and Israel, where we get the Philistines from Philistia and Israel. <clears throat> Last, oh, the first time I ever preached this text on a Sunday morning was at my first pastorate. And uh, every time I said Philistines, I accidentally said Philippines. And so I was like, God was against the Philippines. And he was, wanted to take down the Philippines. And they're like, hey, man, do you have some things we need to talk about? That sounds kind of messed up. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to, if I ever say Philippines this morning, don't laugh. Act like it just didn't happen, okay? Because sometimes it may slip out. We're talking about the Philistines, not the island over in, in the Pacific, okay? Not the, the, the island nation. So Philistines, God against the Philistines, not Philippines. If I say it enough times, maybe it won't happen. The Philistines were a people that were located on the coastlands of the Mediterranean. Would you mind going ahead and throw that map up there? I know I'm going to save it for later too, but I want to look at something now first. So in the green in the top left-hand corner of that image, you'll see where it says Philistia. And the, all the tan part is, is Israel, and it's really just a small part of Israel. But the main part that you would know of would be the little town. It's not a little town. It's the capital city of Jerusalem, which is sort of in the top right, the eastern part of that image. Uh, now you're going to see the shaded part that's sort of zoomed in at the bottom there. It's the shaded part that's in the middle that it's brought down and zoomed in at the bottom. We'll talk about that, but for now I just want you to see that the people on the west over there are the Philistines in Philistia, and we're talking about Israel, which is the rest of it. And so Philistia is sort of <clears throat> cut out of the nation of Israel. Now this is really important, and that is that God's people's history is one of being geographically unsettled or geographically threatened. 
The fact that the Philistines were so close to them in proximity meant that they were often one of the ones doing the threatening. Uh, but this is larger than Philistia. I mean, even the, the fact that <clears throat> when Abraham was in the region known as Canaan, it wasn't Israel. And God said, you're a foreigner in this land, but one day this is going to belong to your, your descendants. And so God sends Joshua in conquest. We're skipping a lot here, right? But he sends Joshua in conquest, and they go in, and they've got to fight to take this land that God has given to them. And in doing so, there's constantly a geographical struggle there. Even so much that five of the people groups around them banded together, the kings banded together and said, let's take them down. And so you have God and his people fighting against all these people around them that are trying to get them out, to get them out geographically encroaching and threatening God's people. And this was constantly happening. And honestly, you could say it's still happening, right? And so God's people being constantly threatened geographically is something that is a big theme in the Old Testament. And so then we enter into this narrative. It's a time of frequent war, specifically against Philistia. Israel feared the Philistines, and they worried about their own future. Now, here's the problem with that. Worrying about the future and seeing some, having some anxiety about people wanting you out is normal. But the problem is that Israel would often turn to terrible, idolatrous means to cope with that uncertainty. They would turn to neighboring gods, the Canaan gods, and say, oh, if we sacrifice to this god, that we'll have crops. If we sacrifice to this god, then we'll have increased fertility. Or maybe the gods will give us their favor in war. And so in a time of uncertainty and fear and worry, it drove them to idolatry instead of trusting God. Not only did it drive them to neighboring gods, it also drove them to uncertainty about God's leadership. And so you know what they did? They demanded a king. God, your leadership is not enough. We need a human, physical king among us. And that person was King Saul. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He fit the bill. He looked like he was a tough guy. He's the one that we want to be king. But God had already told them, I'm your king. Like, I'm all that you need. And yet they demanded, and he said, fine, you have a king of your own making. They wanted to be like the other nations. Give us a king. And so they demanded a king of their own making, which again was them questioning God's protection and God's leadership. And while Saul passed the eye test, he did not pass the heart test. By 1 Samuel 17, he had fallen out of favor with God, had disobeyed God, dishonored God, manipulated the people. I mean, so much can go into that. Ultimately, what I want you to know is this. These people doubted their God. They doubted their God. And so Samuel, instructed by God, who, by the way, is the guy that this book is named after, Samuel was a prophet. He was instructed by God to approach a young shepherd boy named David to be the new king of Israel. That should sound like an oxymoron statement, right? A young shepherd boy to be the king. It makes no sense on paper, but this was God's plan. And so he goes, Samuel does, and anoints David as king. And so before David has a royal scepter and a crown on his head, he has a shepherd's staff, and he's a young and handsome and red-faced dude that is so unimposing. And so 1 Samuel 17 is a narrative about God defending his own name. Pause. God defending his own name and reminding his people they don't need a human king, reminding his people they don't need other gods, they need him. Defending his own name, but also transitioning kingship from a prideful king to a servant king that would faithfully serve the true king. Israel is approached in battle by the Philistines. You reach a boiling point. 
The king, who is Saul, was responsible then to accept the battle as representative of his people. And yet Saul was terrified. He's afraid. He's a coward. And so God's people stand against an enemy with none able, none willing to fight for them. And so David, their God-sent king, arrives to prevail over the enemy that is bearing down. I'm using that language very intentionally. The God-sent king arrives to defeat the enemy that is bearing down on his people. And so uh, this is going to be a very unconventional message, but I'm going to give you the first main thing that I want you to see, and that is that past, present, and future, our God prevails over his enemies. Past, present, and future... Our God prevails over his enemies. Past, present, and future, our God prevails over his enemies. And this is what we're going to see in our passage. And by the way, again, I told you I used that language intentionally. The David is their God-sent king that's arriving to prevail over the enemy that's bearing down. Doesn't that sound like our situation with sin? A God-sent king that arrives to defeat the enemy that's bearing down. I mean, we're going to get there, but I want you to see that. That the goal today as we look at this passage is to see another king and the power of God to prevail over his enemies in the story of David and Goliath, but even more importantly, in the story of the gospel of Christ Jesus. So, we're going to read almost all of chapter 17, but I'm going to jump at a few parts, and we're going to read chunks and then make some observations, and we'll sort of backload the application this morning and make some illustration as we go, okay? By the way, if you didn't notice, I got the big boy here on the stage this morning. That means we're getting into it. You know what I'm saying? I brought the real item. All right. First Samuel 17, verses 1 through 7, we're going to read first. It says this, Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. So it's, it's Israel, it's, it's Judah's place. And encamped between Soko and Ezekah at uh, in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He, had, he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. This is an important geographical battle. Uh, and that image you saw, put that back up there for just a second if you don't mind. This part that zoomed in sort of typifies what I'm talking about. You'll see sort of at the bottom in faded gray letters where it says uh, Valley of Elah. That is where this battle is taking place. And the little kind of red dot and blue dot represent the two mountains. So just think about it like this. You have a people here, an army here, and an army here. And they're sort of waiting for the battle to take place here. And they're sort of just standing there and waiting for something to happen. The, the battle's going to happen. We're just sort of putting off the inevitable. Armies on either side. And so the reason this is significant, and you'll see it there, this, you can't really appreciate it with this map, but just east of this battle, you'll notice that the terrain, if you can see it, it gets, the texture gets sort of rocky. It's because a victory in the Valley of Elah would grant Philistia entry into the hill country of Judah, which would mean a major tactical advantage in their fight, meaning that Jerusalem could fall. I mean, this would be a very big loss if God's people were to take it. And so it says that a guy named Goliath steps out, and he's described as 
a champion. Now, that doesn't mean that he has like a trophy or wears a WWE heavyweight champion of the world belt. Okay, that's not what this means. When it says champion, don't think that he like got in a, a wrestling match or he's like a sumo wrestler or something. He's the champion. That's not what Goliath is. This word champion, think of it more in terms of the champion of a cause. That means someone that's going out as a representative. Okay, so literally this is an army representative that would go out, a champion that would step out to fight between the battle lines. This is Goliath, the champion, the one that went out on behalf of the army. They sent out a pretty good one, right? He was nine feet, nine inches, which is, I'm just going to translate some of these measurements that may be foreign to you and foreign to me. Uh, nine feet, nine inches. His armor weighed 125 pounds. That's a lot. The tip of his spear, just the iron spearhead, was 15 pounds by itself. This is a big dude, and he had a bunch of big, heavy, nice bronze equipment. He was bronzed out, right? Look at the second half of verse 7, and then we're going to go to verse 12. It says, and his shield bearer went before him. Verse 8, <coughs> he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. So he yells at the army, why have you come out to draw up for battle? And he said, what is the point is what he's saying. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will, bear, we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, this is important, he said, I defied the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, man was already, the man was already old and advanced in years. What happens here is that Goliath steps out, goes into the valley, and says, hey, bring it. Whoever you got, you bring out. I'm the champion here. I'm the one that's representing my guys. You bring out whoever you want to represent y'all, and we will fight it out. But more importantly is that he dishonors Israel. And when I say dishonors Israel, he is not just calling out these human army people. He's calling out their God. By dishonoring them, he is dishonoring their God, which is very important to the story. He is taunting God. Goliath is taunting God, and God will not be mocked. God's about to use David, a young and unlikely champion of God's people. Verses 13 through 16 say this. The three eldest sons of Jesse, so this is David's bros, had followed Saul into battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David <clears throat> went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Just for 40 days, he came out there and he was taunting. David isn't even in the army, much less in the fight. He's not there for this taunting. That's why it says that he was going back and forth. And so David didn't hear these things. But it says that Goliath did this every day for 40 days he went out there. David is then, I'm going to skip these next few verses. David does an errand for his dad. His dad says, I want you to take supplies to your brothers that are in the fight. And so I'm just kind of paraphrasing. David is given this task to go and, and uh, serve his brothers. Verse 23, look down at verse 23. It says, as he talked with them, behold, so he's, he's there now, he's ministering to the dudes. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Goth, Goliath by name, here it is, he came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, here's the change, and David heard him. 
So the change in the narrative now is that David was in earshot of the taunting against God. Verse 26, look down to verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This challenge is a challenge against God and his spiritual in nature. And David knows that. He sees that this is not just Goliath against Israel. It's Goliath against God. And so David knows that God will not be defeated. Go down to verse 31 to verse 33. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. David sent, or Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, now he's speaking to the king. He says, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Don't, don't let your heart fail because of that guy. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with them, for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. It's like he's saying, dude, he's been fighting longer than you've been alive. That's, that's, that's my translation. Verse 34 through 37. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand. By the way, the Hebrew word's the same. He's saying from the paw of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. That's just saying, okay, good luck. That's what he's saying. All right, fine. Go do your thing. Guys, David, he's not a wimp. I mean, you already said, I wish I could be a fly on the wall when David said those things. And Saul is just like, okay, Mr. Crazy, you just go do your thing. David's not a wimp, y'all. He is a warrior. You know, we, we have the wrong picture in our head, I think, sometimes when we think about David. Because when we think about little shepherd boy David, the way that I've even been talking about him so far, we have two sort of images. We, we think either this first image, go ahead and put that first one up. We either think of David like this. If you have this statue in your home, I apologize, okay? <laughs> Um, figurine, whatever. We think of David like this, or based on this description, we may think of him like this. That's pretty intense, right? <clears throat> uh, I'm just going to spoil It's probably between the two, okay? Probably not the precious moments figurine, but probably also not this Samson-looking dude that's like really, that is an intense image. We went on a safari when we were in Africa. Even that, that's a, a little bit dramatic, that's, that image, I would say, just to hear. And please, you can take that image down. Um, the point is that David was both unimposing, but also he could handle himself. That's the point. He, it's between the two. He was unimposing, he was innocent looking and youthful, but also he has a track record of being a real tough guy. The point is, while physically he didn't have it, it was obvious that he did. Here's the reason. God's hand was on him. God's hand was on him. He, he had done amazing things, not because of him, but because God's hand was on him. He was the anointed new king of Israel. And so these images, I think, sort of help us, maybe not so much those, but the images in our mind help us to understand that David wasn't just a, a flimsy little fragile dude. He could fight, but it's because God's hand was on him, even if he was unimposing. These next verses are so exciting. 38 then says, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. 
Put a helmet of bronze, just like Goliath. You want to fight? Go put the bronze on. Put a helmet of bronze on his head. He clothed him with a coat of mail, his armor. David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried, to go, he tried in vain to go. It's so heavy, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. So now he's going, no helmet, no armor, and no sword. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine into the valley. And this is, as I like to say, this is when you would hear Queen's uh, We Will Rock You playing over the loudspeaker. They're marching together, and it's, that's what I hear at least. Maybe you're not like me. It's probably for the best. The drama of this scene cannot be overstated. What we have here, tail of the tape, is Goliath and bronze versus David and sticks and rocks. Okay, Goliath and bronze versus David with sticks and rocks. If David falls, Israel falls. If Goliath falls, then Philistia falls. And so it doesn't take a genius to see on paper we have a bit of a mismatch, right? But the paradox is that this is not not a fair fight for David, but in all reality, this is not a fair fight because it's Goliath against God. When we think of the David and Goliath story, we think the mismatch of Goliath, he's so big versus little David, but that's not the mismatch. The mismatch is little Goliath versus big, undefeated, unbeatable God. This is David and Goliath. The big mismatch happens in verse 41 through 45. Let's read it. And the Philistine moved forward, came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome. Ruddy means he's red-faced and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? Remember, he's got a staff in his hand. Am I a dog? Did you come to me with sticks? I think that's a great uh, jab. Uh, just to be honest, as somebody that really appreciates trash talk in sports, that's a good one. I mean, can we just be honest? Got a stick in your hand. What am I, a dog? I love that. Good line. Too bad you're going to lose. <laughs> My dog, did you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Hmm. The Philistine said to David, come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. That means armies. The God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. There's the mismatch. He said, You think you've got the advantage. But boy, are you mistaken. Let's finish the passage all the way to the end. 46. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. 
So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran over and ran, stood over the Philistine. He took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Goth and the gates of Ekron, so that wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Goth and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, which was his commander, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. Verse 56, and the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. 57, and as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. That's a huge win. A mismatch indeed. Past, present, and future, our God prevails over his enemies. But there is a reason for that. Our God prevails over his enemies that all may know him. Come on, y'all. That all may know him. Why does God do this? Why does God fight? Why does he conquer? Why does he prevail over his enemies? It is that all may know him. I want to come back real quick to verses 46 and 47. In the middle of the heat of this battle, David says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know. You hear it, right? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Who's the one fighting here? It ain't David. It is God. And whose namesake is on the line? It ain't Saul, and it ain't David. It is God's name that's on the line. Why? That all may know that it is always associated, will always forever be associated, that God is a God who saves and fights and never loses. The battle was for the glory of God. And this is how God works. This isn't just true in David and Goliath. Isn't that how God works? I could list 1,500 things right here in the list I'm about to say. I've chosen just a few. This is how God works, that, he may, that all may know. He subdued Pharaoh in Egypt, that all may know. He parted the Red Sea, that his army, that his people would know. He sent manna from heaven, that his people would know. He conquered the Canaanites, that all may know. He provided a land for their dwelling, that they may know. He quenched the flames engulfing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? That they may know. He turned water into wine, that the witnesses would know. He walked on water, that his disciples would know. He fed 5,000, that every one of them would know. He raised Lazarus with a word that everybody that saw that would know. He foretold his suffering so that when it happened, his disciples and all those that heard would know. Know what? That God is God and there is no other. That he is God and there is none like him. It's Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old. 
for I am God. Remember the former things of always. Consider my reputation. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Not Pharaoh, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Cyrus of Persia, not Herod, the so-called great, not Caesar, not whoever is sitting in the Oval Office, past, present, and future, our God fights for his people, and our God prevails over his enemies that all may know him. Guys, the same is true today. Why does God fight? Why is God victorious? So that you'll know exactly who he is, and he is the winner. It's a well-known passage, right? But it's a passage that is so far too often misunderstood. And if you haven't already picked up on it, I want to give you a word of warning. Beware. And use, use your ears on this one. Not just in this room, but I mean forevermore as you hear this passage being discussed. Beware the temptation to read the Bible as if you were the hero. Beware the temptation to read the Bible as if you are the hero. Abraham failed, Moses failed, Adam failed, Samson failed, David failed. There is one infallible hero in God's word, and it's the star attraction, is God. A me-centered approach to Scripture, it distorts the meaning of every passage, but it certainly distorts the meaning of this passage. David and Goliath is not about how God helps you defeat your giants. Can I say this again? David and Goliath is not about how God helps you defeat your giants. You are not David in the story. You're not David in this story. You and I are the trembling and hopeless Israelites folding under the weight of an insurmountable enemy, terrified, paralyzed, as good as dead. But then David, the God-sent representative who steps out to fight between the battle lines, David, the champion from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem defeated the enemy that only God could defeat that his people may live. The son of David, Jesus by name, the God-sent representative of sinful man from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, our champion who steps out in our place to fight for us, the Christ, defeated the enemy that only God could defeat that his people may live. Our champion did not slay a physical giant, but a far superior spiritual one called sin. Amen. And why? Why did he deal the death blow to death that all may know, that all may know? That he is God and there is no other. That he is God and there is none like him. Do you know? There's another thing that I want to see, aside from what we've already seen, which is that past, present, and future, God fights for his people. He prevails over his enemies that all may know. But right behind that is that death will not prevail over the church. That's the enemy. Death is the enemy. From Genesis chapter 3, that was the enemy. What's the curse? Death. Sin. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely, say it, die. From day one of sin, the enemy was death. And death is our great enemy. But right here we see that death will not prevail over the church. The Greek word for church in the New Testament, it's it's all over the New Testament, is the word ekklesia. And I'm going to tell you why that's important. The word is ekklesia. And that word literally means assembly. 
It means called out ones more specifically. Doesn't that make sense? Like we're, the call, we're called out from the world to belong to Jesus. That's the church. We're the called out ones. We're also the assembly. This is the ecclesia. There's something called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This would have been most of the early church's Bibles. Okay? Their, their Bibles, the Old Testament, was the Septuagint. In the Greek-speaking world, they needed a translation of the Bible that they could understand. In an archaic language like Hebrew, they had a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So their Bibles in the New Testament was called um, the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word ekklesia, again, it's all over the New Testament, the assembly, the called out ones. In the Old Testament, that word is used for times. It's used twice in Deuteronomy, it's used once in 1 Kings, and it's used once in 1 Samuel. Ecclesia, called out ones, assembly. It's used in 1 Samuel 7, or, yeah, 1 Samuel 17, verse 47 by David, and in Matthew 16, 18 by Jesus. In verse 47, let's look back at it. So he says that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. God's going to win this one and that everybody will know, verse 47, and that all this Ecclesia, that all of this assembly will know, may know, that the Lord saves. That this assembly will know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. Four times this word's in the Old Testament. Right here is one of them. I don't think that's a mistake. In Matthew 16, Jesus is asking his disciples, who people are saying that he is. You guys know this passage, right? Matthew 16, he's with his homies, and he says, hey guys, who are people saying that I am? Jesus is really into his own name. Not a mistake. God's always been that way. Who are people saying that I am? You hear that, right? I want people to know me. Who are people saying that I am? His disciples were like, yeah, John the Baptist. Some people are saying maybe Elijah. Some people are saying you're Jeremiah. Some people are saying you're one of the prophets. This is all in Matthew 16. Jesus says, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the bold, he steps up and says, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus says, yep. And he says, God showed you this. That all may know. Matthew 16, 18. It's a wonderful verse. And it says this, Jesus' response to Peter. He says, you're right about that, Peter. God showed you this. And then he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. By the way, Peter's name literally means rock. It's Petros. It's where the name Petra. You ever heard of the place Petra in the Middle East? It's very rocky. That's why. Petra, his name means rock. He says, I tell you, you're Peter. You're rock. And on this rock, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my assembly. I will build my called out ones, my church. He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The called out assembly who will follow Jesus into victory. Don't you remember David in 1 Samuel 17, 47, that all these called out ones, that all this assembly will know that I'm the champion that's going forward. The victory belongs to God. And now they're going to march and they're going to run into your territory. And the victory is going to belong to them because the victory came through me. You cannot miss the comparison to Jesus there. The Jesus steps in and says to Peter, hey, I'm bringing the victory and through you, through, this, through you, this whole assembly, these called out ones, it's going to be built on your mission. And specifically on Peter's confession of faith. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Guys, death will not prevail over the church, but there's a reason why. It's because Jesus prevailed over death. 
Death will not prevail over the church, but it's because Jesus prevailed over death. This is right before his crucifixion in Matthew 16. He's giving them a precursor. He's saying, yeah, on, the, the, it won't prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail over my assembly. The gates of hell will not prevail. In that passage, Matthew 16, 18, it's translated in the ESV, the gates of hell. Now, your translation may say something different, but the Greek word there is the word Hades. The gates of Hades will not prevail. It may say the gates of Sheol, Hades or Sheol. It's called the realm of the dead. Hell is really not a good translation because we think of the place of condemnation for people that spend eternity apart from Jesus. And that's a true doctrine. But what Jesus is referring to is Hades, simply saying death. He's saying death won't prevail. He's saying the, the, the realm of the dead, the gates of death. Now, why does he say gates? Well, in the ancient world, gates were essential for a city's security and power. If, they had, if a city had weak gates, it was a weak city. It would be easily one to fall. But if it had strong gates, it was a fortified city. Do the math. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that death has no power over the church because death's gates have been compromised. Death has been weakened. It has no power over my assembly. My called out ones, they need not fear death because its gates are nothing. Perhaps a verse of scripture will make this make a little bit more gravitas. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. It's on the screen. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If death is the enemy, and death comes through sin, and Jesus paid for sin, and he vacated his own grave, that sounds like winning to me. That sounds like prevailing to me. That sounds like the gates of hell being destroyed, and that place having no fortified power. Guys, the death and resurrection of Jesus are the sling and the stone, the crushed head and the decisive defeat, not of a little Philistine, but of the serpent of Eden, of the wages of sin, and of the power of the grave. And this is the story of the book of Acts. That's the story of the book of Acts, isn't it not? If death cannot defeat the church, then neither can any lesser enemy. If death can't defeat the church, the assembly, the ecclesia, if death can't defeat the church, then neither can any lesser enemy. You think Rome had any chance against God's church? You think Caesar had any chance against the church of Jesus? No chance. You think any world religion could ever squash the movement of Jesus? Not a chance. You think school restrictions have a chance against the cross of Christ and the empty grave? You think government mandates can slow down our God and his movement? No president, no governor, no senator, no congressman, no judge will ever rival God Almighty and his unstoppable church. No culture war will ever prevail. No LGBTQ movement, no gender confusion, no indoctrination of our kids, no mockery, no scorn, no name calling, no intimidation will prevail over God who has defeated the greater enemy, which is sin and death. 
The church and our mission marches on, not because of our fight, but because the fight was secured by our champion, the one that's already gone out and secured the battle. Satan is disarmed because his main weapon is death, and it is nothing. It's nothing. The church, the ecclesia, began in a little room with a few dozen believers. And Caesar and the greatest empire on earth at the time couldn't stamp it out. They tried. They tried to stamp it out. They dragged the people that identified Jesus to the Colosseum and had them murdered. They tried. Intimidation and fear tactics. You know what the church said? What, with death? You think think death is going to disarm us? That one's done. That one's defeated. And look at the church now. Look for Caesar now. You're not going to find him. Because he's done. And that movement that started in a small room marches on. Not because of the movement of the people, but because of the movement of the God, the champion, the victor. In this world, you are up against many giants that make you look small. And the giants that we struggle with, they may be external, and maybe they're internal. They may be things like the culture, the government, your peers, your classmates, your coworkers, and it's hard to continue the fight against them. And I don't mean that physically, literally. I mean persevering against opposition constantly, constantly, constantly. And maybe that's opposition out there, or maybe it's opposition in here, an internal giant like shame or guilt or envy or bitterness or depression or worry, and you are weary. But this story is not about facing your giants. It's about, by faith, celebrating and glorifying our God who already defeated them, their lesser enemies because the greater is already disarmed. Can we rejoice that God has conquered our eternal enemy? And can we rejoice that because of that, your daily enemies, the lesser enemies, have been disarmed of their lasting power? In this life, you may not be relieved of the hardship, but it will not expire beyond this life, or will not outlast beyond this life. John 16, says, Jesus said, this is right before his crucifixion, he said, I've said these things to you that in me, in me, the champion, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Church, endure the wait with persevering faith until the day comes when he returns and the victory is final. Anticipate the day, a final victory. Live each day as one victorious, not defeated. And on days and in moments that you fail, remember that your victory is not in your fight. It is in the fight that is already solidified, completed, finished, as he said, by your champion. And let us go on mission. Guys, there are people out there that are still under the burden of the enemy, that they will still be victims to death and sin and will spend eternity apart from God. And all we have to do is go to them and say, I know where peace can be found. And the one who has gone for you and fought this fight for you, 
Guys, we live in a world that is searching for hope and meaning. Let's go and reveal him to them. And today, if that's you, if you still feel the burden of guilt because you've never laid it down and found your identity in the person and work of Jesus, then today my invitation is not to fight harder. That's a losing battle. My invitation is not to just strive better. That's a losing battle. My invitation is to cling to the victor, to the champion, who has gone in your place in victory, that we may march forward. Guys, the church, can we just talk about how good news this is? The church will be undefeated. Not because of the church, but because of our champion. Let's thank God for him.